Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this episode, the CSP has a radical approach to data, a first for the union movement, plus the campaign to secure proper recognition for the 1888 Match Girl Strikers, and Mel Sims thought for the week and Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup. Hello listeners and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and we have a fabulous show for you this time round. We've got John Morby from the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy, the CSP, who's got the great job title of being Director of CSI. Hmm? Not a crime scene in evidence anywhere, I can tell you. Something entirely different, but you'll have to listen to find out. We've also got Jenny Andrew, who is newly appointed as the CSP's head of data, the only head of data in the UK union movement, as far as we can tell. We'll have Sam Johnson, who is chair of the board of trustees of the Match Girls 1888 Statute Trust. Uh, Everyone knows about the Match Girls in 1888, of course, but her current preoccupation is to try and save the grave of one of the strike leaders who also happens to be Sam's great-grandmother, from being lost forever due to redevelopment. And of course, we've got our regular contributors, Mel Sims in her Thought for the Week, looking at the links between trade unionism and the green agenda, and Josiah Mortimer with some riveting stories that you probably won't find in the mainstream media in his Radical Roundup. First up, let's turn to Mel with her Thought for the Week. This week, Mel is looking at the real meaning of sustainable development goals and other bits of jargon associated with the climate debate and draws the connection for us between the campaign to save the planet and the campaign for a better working life. This week, I've been talking to colleagues about the UN's sustainable development goals, often shortened to SDGs. And the SDGs are 17 global goals articulated by the United Nations that form an urgent call to action for all countries. And the goals have a long history. Back in 1992, as an undergraduate, I was lucky enough to be part of a youth delegation to Rome that was part of the global audience at the launch of what was then called Agenda 21, sometimes called the Rio Declaration. That was a statement of mainly about sustainable development, and originally it focused on environmental sustainability. But over the decades, it's widened to acknowledge that economic and social objectives have to be balanced with environmental objectives if we can have an effective plan towards sustainable development. So the SDGs now cover a wide range of objectives, which include social, economic and environmental goals. And you can Google a full list if you're interested. But they cover areas such as clean energy and safe water, but also poverty elimination, sufficient food for all, gender equality and decent work. And I think it's fair to say that as a trade unionist and as a researcher, decent work has always been at the heart of my personal and professional objectives and interests. But it's only more recently that I've really started to think through how the objective of decent work links to those other goals. And the crucial shift for me has been to see all 17 goals as interconnected. 
decent work isn't enough. If it comes at the price of dirty industry that hastens climate change, then we all lose. Or if decent work is, uh, for some, exacerbates existing inequalities, it's a false victory. In November, the UN Climate Change Conference, known as COP26, comes to Glasgow, which is the city I now live in. And it's a huge opportunity for trade unionists to form common cause alliance with campaigns around all of the UN SDGs. But it's going to take a lot of thinking about how to achieve that. I think too often we're tracked into campaigning around relatively narrow workplace and economic issues. And whilst those are hugely important, if they aren't put in the context of the wider goals, it's hard to see how we can develop an agenda for worker justice at a global level. Many thanks for that, Mel. And just a bit of a spoiler alert. Mel and I are already talking about how we can produce a special Union Jews episode to coincide with COP26 in the autumn. And some of those themes that Mel was outlining will be picked up by Josiah in his Radical Roundup later in the show. Now to turn to our main featured guests, uh, the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy is not the largest of unions, but it represents well over 85% of the profession. And the union has a great reputation for representing not only the profession, but the professionals who make it up as well. But it's not a quiet place to work by any means, having already decided that they're going to sell their central London office during the course of the pandemic. They've now gotten and appointed the first ever trade union head of data. What does that mean? What does it entail? How do you get to be a head of data? And the head of data reports to the director of CSI, which is a recipe for confusion as well as much else. First up, let's hear from Jenny Andrew, who is the CSP's head of data and then to her boss, the head of CSI, John Morby. So, uh, Jenny Andrew, um, the head of data for the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy, what what is a head of data? What is a head of data? Um, well, it, look, this is this is new. This is you know a new post to me. It's a new post to the CSP. I think it's probably a new post to the union movement. Um, so we we are. Uh, figuring that out to a certain extent. Um, but look, we, I think we're all talking about data as an asset. Um, I'm not sure we're all behaving that way with it. We want to be using it and that's great. Why would we, why would we keep it? Why would we collect it if we weren't going to use it? Thing is we do use it and often quite well. So if you look around research departments, organizers, there are quite a lot of people around the union movement who are, who are doing good things with data. But the, the choke point is the, the data itself. So it can be hard to get at, it can be hard to understand, um, can be hard to integrate one data source with another. Maybe we don't completely trust its quality. And that puts off our analysts, you know, whatever department they're in. It, it limits the usefulness of the data and, and therefore it, it limits its value. So data use isn't the missing piece here data management is and that's really what my expertise is so if we're thinking about data as an asset uh, we would would know this intuitively so for example if you if you had cash flow problems you'd probably get yourself a financial advisor and and not a personal shopper so what's missing here is the expert choreography of, of data management activities running through from collection where we, we, we maximise its usefulness 
and then supporting its use, supporting its reuse. So that whole pipeline to, to getting the value out of data. So head of data, that's me. You can kind of compare me to like a head of HR who, who develops staff assets to, to match the changing needs of an organization or to a head of finance who monitors and, and manages the financial assets to make sure it's being used responsibly. And I'm doing all of that with the data asset and in a way that hopefully is is aligned to and proportionate to the corporate strategy. So I understand the concept of data as, a, as an asset and I'm sure anyone who's negotiated on behalf of a group of members knows, as you say, intuitively what data is going to be important and powerful and how, how to use it. But data isn't like saying being a head of finance or a head of HR because you've got certain access issues collectively known as GDPR. So how, how do you marry the requirements of GDPR with the effective use and management and collection of data that you've just discussed? Yeah, this, I mean, this is so interesting and it all comes down to, to data governance. I mean, to, to be honest, I'm going to pull you up there because like to a large extent, you know, finance operations have the same kinds of issues. They've got regulatory compliance, um, you know, that they've got to live up to as well. You know, so there are a lot of analogies there. But I think one of the things that frightens us about uh, GDPR, about ethical use and responsible use of data in general, is that we are not good at managing it. We're not good at governing it. And there's a there's a useful analogy <laughs> that, that talks about the, the light switch versus the dimmer switch. And with a light switch, it's, it's everything or nothing. Everybody gets all the light or, or no light at all. Whereas with the dimmer switch, you, you, know, you control how much light is, is let out. And you do that in, with, with data, when we're talking about that um, data in that way, um, we apply um, carefully considered governance and carefully considered access policies. And we we let people have just enough of the, the, the data, access to just enough of the data that they can do their jobs with it without a free-for-all, without throwing everything at them. So like, for example, if I am, uh, you know, organizing in my workplace, I might need to know a list of names of my members. I don't need to know their home addresses. I don't need to know their postcodes. I don't need to know their, you know, their national insurance numbers. And if we are doing data governance and get data management right, then we can leak out just the right amount of data so that those people can do their jobs without fear of, of ethical or legal breaches. I see. Uh, I think you're right when you say that head of data is a new thing, not just for the CSB, but for the trade union movement uh, as a whole. And uh, I suspect both of us would like to think that there will be lots and lots of people who think, I never thought that working for a union could be like like that. That's something I want to do. How did you get here? What was your trade union journey that led you to this position? Oh, flip me. Um, like this was convoluted, a, a, a string of happy accidents. So I, I, I mean, I, I started working in, as a data professional. I worked as a data manager for 10 years in the public services, in, in public sector research. And I... Um, trade unionist to my core. Um, I, I was the, the local rep for my workplace. I did more and more and more of the union rep bit as it goes and thought eventually, oh, do you know what, I, I, I want to be working for the union movement full time. 
and landed myself into a full-time trade union job. But of course, I was working in organizing first, and then I was working in research. And these are like these are some of the real kind of data-intensive functions of trade unions. And of course, a trade union is not a data-native organization. These are like legacy organizations and haven't evolved to function in a in a streamlined uh, data-centric way. And so for the last few years, I guess I have been watching data operations and you know chatting to people around the trade union movement and thinking, oh, like if if only, if only somebody would let me get my hands on their data operation to clear up. And guess what? <laughs> the CSP, bless their cotton socks, they've done it. Superb, superb. Jenny, best of luck. Thanks for talking to us. Well, to put some of the things that Jenny was talking about in context, such as how and why the CSB decided to go down this route, it was appropriate to speak to John, who is the head of CSI. John Morby, head of CSI at the Chance Society of Physiotherapy. Now, you're not, I mean, this is not a crime scene gig, is it? What does CSI stand for? So CSI stands for Corporate Services and Infrastructure. So it's kind of everything that supports the organisation to, to function as well as it can. From um, kind of the finance side, uh, where obviously you're trying to put your money and resources to the right things to have the biggest impact, um, but also um, just the, the way people work. So the softer stuff like the facilities, the desks that they work from, you know, the computers and all that. Because that's 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 not just the the mortar and the bricks. That's actually a load of the bricks as well. And and it's interesting to me that Jenny, who we've just heard from, works in your directorate. So therefore, the CSP sees data in that context rather than say a services to members or or any other sort of sort of function. Why does the CSP feel data is so important? Well. That, that question about where it sits, I think, is quite an interesting one, because I think being agnostic, being led by uh, ultimately a, a professional who can tell you kind of how you should be best using your, your data to serve your purposes, your organisational purposes, is really important with data, because data can be one of those things that you pull out kind of on a needs basis to really validate your assumptions or what you're trying to trying to do. Uh, and in terms of the, the importance of data at the CSP, I think we talked for years um, as a profession about being evidence-based and being the, the professional body of the trade union. We want to kind of inform our insights by kind of reliance on evidence, being able to uh, use that kind of uh, insight to advocate and to inform our, our policy decisions and so on. But um, there's really kind of, I guess, disparate use of data in the organisation. So we had collected a lot. There's a lot kind of available to us, but no systematic reporting of data. And I think data has kind of huge potential, which has been talked about for well over a decade now, it's 15 years ago, I was at KPMG and we were working um, in a business intelligence function where data was kind of king, you know, everyone was talking about kind of the potential for big data and big systems. But that link between kind of systems and data and the potential to kind of fall foul of, I guess, consultants who might tell you what you could do within the big systems environment to get the most of your data was something that I think at the CSP we'd fallen foul of in the past. So it kind of effectively over-promised and under-delivered. And I think part of that was maybe because we hadn't really got the right uh, people in the team to, to help. So, so to address that imbalance of, of over-promising and under-delivering, presumably that led to the conclusion that 
amongst the investment one needs to make in data is to have someone who is the head of data, hence the post that, that Jen has been appointed to. Exactly, yeah. And I think it's, it's the, the art of the possible in data can excite kind of even someone who, who I guess, doesn't necessarily kind of have the technical expertise. And we recognise that the technical expertise are pretty crucial, actually, to, to really um, help us not kind of fall down the same kind of um, rabbit holes that uh, other organisations get pulled down when they're trying to solve all sorts of organisational problems, trying to kind of um, create insight to drive better decision making and there's so many rich examples as a profession we represent 85 percent of physiotherapists that's more than any single employer so we have this kind of great opportunity to be the voice piece of the profession to to support members in their professional careers to kind of help them identify opportunities explore those opportunities uh, and indeed to kind of help them uh, or help us understand where the problems might be where Problem, problematic employers might be or, or particular workplace issues are arising. But all of that is not really done when the data quality is not there or where you're kind of reliant on others to kind of help you mine your own data. So, so yeah, that's really where um, the, the role of Head of Data and uh, Jenny's role kind of uh, came, came about. And we're just very lucky that Jenny's got that kind of, that, that value set that really understands kind of the potential because I think it can be quite unsettling um data for people yeah absolutely even though the csp's members of course will be using data in quite nuanced and sophisticated ways when they make their diagnosis when they when they uh devise treatment plans when they look at what works and what doesn't from a professional point of view so one one would hope that there's a basic level of literacy and familiarity that means once the strategy is put in place for using data in a more trade union sense people will be will be familiar and confident to use it um what do you think successful use of data in that sense would would look like or could could look like i think first and foremost we need to have this kind of collective shared understanding of what we're trying to use data for and you mentioned data strategy there and i think that's something that it it kind of potentially i guess can overstep it's kind of a system or place in a system you know in the hierarchy where people don't necessarily want the data to kind of say no this isn't working or this is working because actually it's, it's quite nice to kind of be the dominion kind of champion or, or have, have that kind of mm. overwhelming or overarching understanding of what, what you're trying to achieve and whether you're whether you're doing it or not so data like i mentioned can can be quite threatening i think to, to some and I think having that kind of just collective understanding that data is there for good, you know, it can be there for good. It can be there to kind of inform. Um, it has to be properly handled and managed. It has to be kind of uh, something that there's a framework in place for people to collect the right thing, um, to have the right access to the data, but also a professional level of support to bring that analysis to decision making or, or to inform kind of what we're doing, where we're putting our resources and our, our energies. I suppose one thinks of data and one thinks of, of GDPR as the, the regulatory fr- framework. And one also thinks that GDPR is full of checklists and it's it's viewed by a lot of people as quite onerous. But if one can get to the stage where people, CSP members and activists know intuitively what they can do with data, what good data looks like, what good use looks like, that I mean, that would be a, that would be a huge step forward in terms of the agility of the organisation. Yeah. And um maybe a bit too jargony but the value proposition has to be understood by members because they have to be able to understand why you're asking for it in the first place and the various kind of data we ask 
from from our members for we we ask for diversity data. That's become kind of really um, clear for us to understand. Actually, if you if you want to properly pinpoint where the issues are for groups of your members, individuals, you have to be able to collect certain information to to build that understanding to make that that case. Uh, so that's just one example of kind of where having that kind of data picture is, is crucial. But there's all sorts of examples in, in employment, um, in, in the professional side from developing that like pipeline of physiotherapists from university through kind of their, their employment um, across the, the, the different specialisms that exist, um, helping them to understand exactly what direction they can take their career. If we have that, then we can we can really support members in a, in a different way, yes. yeah. um, in different settings. No, that that sounds great, and I, I, I'm interested. Uh, and maybe this is just me because I'm very geeky, but I'm interested. I'm interested. How, how, the reporting lines for this, pr- pr- presumably as part of the CSP's democratic accountability uh, and reporting mechanisms, there will be regular, if not annual, reports about how the data strategy or how data work is 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 going. I mean, is that the best way that I and others can can keep in touch with how this um, this really interesting project is is developing? Yeah, I think um, obviously uh, you, you can invite Jenny or myself back to to, to your uh, show. But I think uh, that there are various ways that data, I guess, should become apparent to members um, as we start to get kind of a better handle on it. So um, all, most members will be aware of kind of our, our data collection exercises around kind of potential balloting uh, later on this year, um, around our kind of constant call to update your profile and so on. But at some point, I'd like to see us kind of pr- producing reports that kind of help members understand exactly kind of uh, what we're doing, kind of how we're doing it. Um, and a lot of members won't necessarily kind of see that, but um, the ones that are interested and, and are looking for it, I'd like to think the level of analysis um, through infographics, through things that kind of help data novices kind of get a proper understanding of kind of, um, yeah, what, what they're looking at. I think uh, yeah. that's what I'd like to see. Excellent. Well, John, thanks for spending time with us and the best of luck with, with the data strategy. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, John. Well, listeners, I hope you found that package interesting and, and useful, setting some hairs running perhaps in your own minds about what your own union could and should be doing differently, how data is used, how there's a strategy for making data more powerful in the hands of, of, of union reps, how it all pieces together in terms of a bargaining and negotiating strategy. If you've got similar experiences of using data in a trade union sense uh, in that in that way, do let us know. UnionDews at makesyouthink.com is the email address. At Jews Union is where we're at on Twitter. Please do get in touch with us. Love to hear your views, love to hear your experiences, love to hear your views about how we can develop some of these ideas in forthcoming episodes. Uh, Of course, by this stage, I knew that John was responsible for more than just data, but for, say, property and office strategy as well. So I couldn't resist asking him about the rationale for the CSP's decision to get rid of its central London headquarters. Council have been talking about it for a couple of years, and um, I guess this was recognising kind of the way we've evolved as an organisation over the years anyway, so it's become a bit more local to our members, kind of recognising that yeah. in, in healthcare there's a real local context um, to the way we work and to the way our members work, the challenges that they face in their workplaces. So, um, yeah, for a while we've kind of been employing more people across the UK uh, and increasingly kind of using our office less. So, um, Some interesting points there, I think. I hope you agree about union staff being closer geographically to the members that they represent, uh, especially as remote working has been shown to be 
highly possible during the pandemic, it must really set union finance officers thinking about the assets they have and whether or not they could be perhaps redeployed elsewhere. Not for me to say, of course. It would be hard to find a trade unionist in the UK who's not heard of the Match Girls dispute against their then employer, Bryant and May, match manufacturer in the late 1880s, how this was an early form of direct action by factory workers in an aggressive, unpleasant, physically deforming environment, which is what working with phosphorus in a match factory was. Sam Johnson is the chair of the trustees of the Match Girls 1888 Statue Trust. And if you're wondering why it's got that particular name, it's because there is no memorial, no monument, no statue to those 200 or so match girls who well over 100 years ago took on bad, unsafe, exploitative employment practices and won. So here's Sam to tell us about the work of the Trust and how you can get involved in supporting it. What particularly sparked this this interaction was uh, was the profile of Sarah Chapman, which has been raised by some some media coverage. I mean, who was Sarah Chapman in the context of the Match Girls, and and why was she important? So Sarah was involved in in the Match Girls strike because she actually worked at the factory at the time and from the research we've done she does appear to have been there quite a long time she probably started as a 12 13 year old and by the time of the strike she was actually one of the older ones and she was aged 25 but we do know that there are several references to things that happened at the time that she was kind of right in the thick of what happens we know that she joined the strike committee when it was formed I think it's safe to say that she was one of the leaders of the strike because not least uh, when they actually won the strike, they formed a union and Sarah was the first delegate to represent them at the TUC. So I think that's a fairly good sign that the others regarded her quite well and she was seen as somebody that they could trust to represent their views. Indeed. And what does the campaign want to do to to commemorate uh, Sarah's grave? So basically, we have with already with the help of Unite and the GMB, we've actually procured a headstone for her. So we've got this beautiful headstone with a carving of her face and it's really wonderful. And we had hoped to put it on her grave where she's buried in Manor Park Cemetery in Forest Gate. Um, unfortunately, there is this uh, process that they use at Manor Park to create new burial spaces mounding um, and it's a really really brutal process I mean they clear all headstones not that Sarah had a headstone but they clear all headstones that are there and then they run over the whole area with um, with a JCB just to completely flatten it and destroy any trace of any graves then they pile on new earth and then they have to wait for a period of sort of anywhere between three and five years for that earth to compact and settle before it's stable enough to put new interments. You know, it's just so sad that what happens is that those graves that are there currently are completely lost because Manor Park don't actually keep a record of where the previous graves were. 
So you can't even go. I mean, my my great granddad, for instance, Sarah's husband, he is also buried, buried there in a different part of the cemetery. And when we very first went to visit Sarah in early 2017, we also wanted to visit his grave. But we discovered he was in an area that had already been mounded. And I asked uh, one of the directors that we met there on site, you know, could you just point me in the direction of where his grave would have been so we could go and pay our respects? And he said, mm, well, we don't keep a map. It's kind of somewhere in this area. And there's this vast area. And I had no idea where my granddad is. So I, I can't even go and, you know, stand near where he is. So that's um, that's really sad. I mean, but it's not out of keeping, is it, in the sense that, that there is a wider campaign that the Trust is involved in to find a memorial to the Match Girls as a, as a whole? Absolutely, yes. I mean, we, we obviously we want to do something for Sarah. I mean, apart from anything, she's my great-grandmother, so I, I really want to honour her from a family perspective. But also because she was a significant figure in the strike, I think she deserves that recognition. But we do have um, the charities been set up specifically to honour all of the match girls. And, and there's 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 nothing really to commemorate what they did. I mean, the factory that they worked in is still there, but of course it's now luxury flats in a gated community. But there isn't any any memorial. There's there's no ongoing kind of reminder to the local people of the heritage of of the Match Girls and you know this wonderful history that's right on their doorstep and they don't know about it. So, so how could listeners find out more uh, about your work and how can they support the work of the Trust? We have a petition going for Sarah to um, to try and stop the mounding. I mean, we've been in contact with the Ministry of Justice for over a year now and we are working to try and actually stop the mounding process going ahead because there are alternative ways to to create new burial space. So one thing is people could sign the the petition which is on change.org and if you just search for Sarah Chapman grave you'll find it. So that would be wonderful if, if listeners could, could could actually sign that. And then the other thing is we have a website which is um, simply matchgirls1888.org and if you go to the website um, you can find where you can actually subscribe to email updates and if you felt moved to um, there's a donate button so you could donate to the to the fund so that we can we can get these memorials in place for the match girls because not only are we aiming for physical memorials we're also setting in place quite a lot of education programs so that we can actually pass on the news of, of the match girls story to to the next generations and we'll be catching up with sam again later on in this series when we get to the anniversary of the match girls dispute uh, which is every july if there is a campaign for a significant event in labor history that's either well established or, or just getting to its feet in your neck of the woods please do let us know you can email the show at unionjews at makes you think.com you can tweet us at jews union we'd love to broaden the the base of information and excitement and encouragement uh, about recording the great wins the great movements the great characters uh, from our movement so if you're listening to this and you're involved with others in your own local equivalent or counterpart to the match girls let us know and we'll try and feature it on a future episode of Union Jews. And now it's time for Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup. This week, Josiah's pulled out stories on the contradictions of the G7 meeting in Cornwall, 
the way in which COVID has affected disabled workers, the fact that shop and warehouse workers are now able to use each other as comparators, plus, following on from Mel's thought for the week, a new GMB statement on zero carbon emissions. But the technical gremlins have added in for us. Josiah has provided the words, but he's unable to be here to deliver them himself. So this episode's Radical Roundup is brought to you by actor David Kerr. Thanks, Simon. First up, the GMB union, which represents thousands of energy workers in the UK, has said there is no credible plan for achieving net zero carbon emissions before 2050. GMB's 103rd annual congress is currently taking place online this year due to the ongoing pandemic. Congress ratified a report from the union's energy committee calling for jobs to be protected in the green transition. Gary Smith, the GMB union's newly elected general secretary, said, Climate change is real. The climate emergency is happening. But the debate over energy and environmental policy must go hand in hand. And over the last decade, it's been mired in political and industrial failure. There is a huge gulf between our climate change ambitions and delivery. We export to the rest of the world the jobs we need to support a recovery and transition to a low carbon economy. And we give billions of pounds in subsidies for big energy to do it. That's unjust, wrong. And as a union of jobs and work, we make no apologies for calling that out. Next, the lavish pomp of this weekend's G7 summit in Cornwall is a sharp contrast in a county where homelessness and food bank use are soaring, making the need for a levelling up package more urgent than ever, the Unite Union has said. The union said this week was a good time to make the case for UK politicians to commit to a blueprint for Cornwall's economic renaissance, while the world's media was focused on the scenic Carbis-based summit. Unite said it was an ugly contrast that while world leaders, including US President Joe Biden, quaff vintage wines and savour gourmet meals, Cornwall had 17 of the most deprived wards in the country at the start of the pandemic. Unite called on summit host Prime Minister Boris Johnson to make good on his levelling up promise by committing to a five-year programme to revive the tourist-dependent, COVID-ravaged Cornish economy. Next. Nearly one in three disabled workers say that they've been treated unfairly at work during the COVID-19 pandemic, according to a new poll published by the TUC on Saturday. The survey, carried out by YouGov for the TUC, reveals that many disabled people report that they experienced significant barriers in the workplace before the pandemic, and that COVID-19 has made things worse for them. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, disabled workers were hugely underrepresented and underpaid in the labour market. The employment gap between disabled and non-disabled workers was 28%, and disabled workers are paid 20% less than non-disabled peers. Recent government figures show that redundancy rates are now 62% higher for disabled workers. Disabled workers told the TUC that their disability or shielding status meant they were treated unfairly and worse than other colleagues during the pandemic. For example, one in 13, 8%, said they were subjected to bullying and or harassment, being ignored or excluded, singled out for criticism or being monitored excessively at work. One in eight, 12%, said they were concerned their disability had affected their chances of a promotion in the future. One in eight, 13%, said they were concerned their disability had affected how their performance would be assessed by their manager. TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady said, Before the pandemic, disabled workers were already up against huge barriers getting into and staying in work. COVID-19 has made it even worse. Employers are failing disabled workers. 
Many disabled and shielding workers felt unsafe at work during the pandemic, and too many disabled workers told us their boss is breaking the law by not giving them the adjustments they need. And finally, supermarkets in the UK have suffered another blow in the battle for equal pay after the Court of Justice of the European Union, CJEU, ruled employees working in stores can compare their roles to colleagues working in distribution centres for the purpose of equal pay. Before the UK left the EU, the CJEU was asked whether part of European law could be relied upon by people in the UK making equal value claims against their employer. Under EU law, a woman can compare their role to that of a man's working in a different establishment if a single source has the power to correct the difference in pay. Lee Day represents more than 50,000 supermarket shop floor workers, most of whom are women, who claim they are paid unfairly in comparison to distribution centre colleagues, most of whom are men. Earlier in the year, the Supreme Court ruled that Asda shop floor workers can compare their roles to those of their colleagues in distribution centres for the purposes of equal pay. Despite this decision, other supermarkets are still arguing that the roles are not comparable. Kieran Dorker, a partner in the employment team at Lee Day, said, This judgment reinforces the Supreme Court's ruling that the roles of shop floor workers can be compared to those of their colleagues in distribution centres for the purposes of equal pay. That's all for the Radical Roundup on the Union Jews podcast. Find the full Radical Roundup on Left Foot Forward every Wednesday. Back to you, Simon. Thank you very much indeed, Dave. And if you want to find out more about any of the stories featured on the Radical Roundup or any of the issues we've covered on this episode, as ever, there's a companion blog post which you can find on the makesyouthink.com website you go over to make you makes you think.com look in the blog section of the website the companion post will contain links signposting background information all the stuff you would need to follow up any of the issues that have caught your eye caught your imagination you want to find out more about well that's just about it for this episode of, of union jews before going i want to give my usual shout out to my fellow podcasters in the labor radio podcast network That's a portal through which you can access over 100 trade union-themed shows. You can access it at labourradionetwork.org. And new to the Labour Radio Podcast Network is one that I must give a particular welcome to, and that is the Amazon Pod, all one word, the Amazon Pod. You can access that through the portal as well, and it's no surprise, it's all about the lives and challenges of workers for Amazon. I'd like to say thank you very much to my guests for this show, to John, to Jenny, to Sam, to Mel and Josiah, of course, but most of all to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time in our company. It's been great to have you along. Don't forget, please, you can contact the show. Give us your views, your comments, your ideas on Twitter at Jews Union or by email to unionjews at makesyouthink.com. If you could subscribe and rate us on the podcast platform of your choice, That would be hugely appreciated. Thank you very much in anticipation for that. Two dates for your diary. In two weeks' time, we'll have our next regular episode. That will feature, I'm confident in saying that, that will feature an in-depth discussion with ACAS chair, Claire Chapman. One to really look forward to. But in one week's time, we'll have a special episode because I took advantage of an opportunity to sit down and have a good old chinwag with Martin Smith, head of organising at the GMB, on the groundbreaking, headline-grabbing deal that the union has struck with Uber. Don't miss either of those. So, until the next time we're together again, do look after yourselves, look after each other, 
stay safe and I'll see you next time on Union Dues. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.